Welcome to the Dharma Spring. So tonight I'm going to explore the territory of, well, explore a territory that I find gets misunderstood and confused, myself included. But often talking with people, there's this, oh, ah, hmm, oh, you see it that way. and um, It's the territory of attachment, detachment, and non-attachment. And the main thing that I notice is people confuse non-attachment with detachment. But rather than just talk about those two, like these, these three are related to one another. So just want to share things that have come up over the years looking at this myself, which primarily is me trying to understand, well, what is this exactly? And it's helpful when other people bring it forth and reflect to me my own misunderstandings or own mistakings of it. Um, and what I'm going to share tonight are a couple of examples that have come forth over the years. Both of these were birthed, well, almost birthed, were offered up at the uh, Vast Refuge Sangha, the community at the Air Force Academy. And in both cases, years apart, these two examples, there was one person, <laughs> two young women, different classes, I don't know if they ever met one another, but found it helpful, each of the examples, so much so that they, they kept bringing it up, oh, that was really helpful to me. I just found out about one recently that I talked about, I think it was last year, the young woman let me know that it comes up to her a lot, and she shares that example with her friends to try to help them out, and I thought, oh, good, if you found it valuable, maybe somebody else will, and um, so I'll offer it here both of them, and see if they turn out to be helpful for you. Um, so the first one I'm going to begin with is the latest one. And I really enjoy where it was birthed from, um, which was in like about a 10-minute drive with Ian, my son. This example came to mind, and it's grown since then, but the, the, the core of it just popped up in a short drive with teenager, which is great. And um, if you've probably heard how much Ian is into Star Wars, if you've talked to me at all or seen anything, you know, he's really into Star Wars. So I don't know, it was since a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe last year, I was driving him to go meet with a group of his friends. I'm not sure why Star Wars was in the conversation, as if it, it needs a reason, according to Ian, maybe, but, you know, it was there. And mainly it was Anakin that came up. And again, I'm not sure the context, if I asked the question or if he was saying something, but Anakin, spoiler alert, who becomes Darth Vader, um, had this idea when he was um, falling in love with Padme Amidala. He had this idea that Jedi are forbidden to love. And that's kind of the phrase that floated up in the car in the conversation. 
I said, no, no, that's not accurate, actually. Because to love is natural. Jedi are not permitted to form attachments, is what I replied to Ian with. In this way, like, they're not allowed to get married, like, to really form an, an actual legal attachment, I guess, in, in Star Wars films. But it's like, it's, they're, they're perfectly permitted to love. You can't stop that, but you're not supposed to form attachments. So I'm thinking... It's Anakin's misunderstanding of that that led him to the dark side. So, <laughs> he misunderstood attachment, non-attachment, and had detachment mixed in there. So, that's why, yeah, that's why he went to the dark side. So, we'll all be able to come back from it or not go there if we understand this, perhaps, right? <laughs> so, to explain this, this idea came up of... Um, an apple tree so this is a magical apple tree it's sentient and it can do the things that trees and other beings do in stories that they can't normally do or maybe they do we just never catch them so this apple tree has been around for a while and going through its various seasons and it has grown to really love the late summer and early autumn time and the spring too but mainly that part when the apples are full it smells wonderful it's standing you know standing there with all its branches out these apples ah smells so great and people come to visit and pluck an apple or sit beneath it and it's just this really rich time in the in the tree's life cycle but then the apples get picked and the seasons roll on the leaves fall things go dormant for a while and Nobody comes to visit as much. Then spring comes along and the hints of the buds coming out and the scent ah, of those blossoms. They speak to the time that's to come where the visitors will come and the apples will be there and they'll be really, really full. So the tree really enjoys that part of its life so much it wants to figure out how do I always have that? How can I always be here in this state so that people are always visiting me and I always smell nice? Yeah? So it decides to get some duct tape. The next time the apples come around and it's a full tree of apples and it duct tapes all the apples to its branches. Yeah? So it can keep them on there. And it's like, oh, this is great. I smell wonderful and the apples aren't going to drop off and people come to visit but it notices that people can't get the apples. And that's kind of weird. But it's like, that's okay. I still have the apples. They're still visiting. And then they stop visiting as much because... Well, it's not really lively anymore for the people. And then time goes by, and the autumn comes, and things start to not drop off and ferment. The leaves are gone, but the apples are still stuck to the branches, and now it's a stinky old vinegary apple tree. And it's like, oh, this is horrible. What have I done? And now people are actually avoiding the tree, because it stinks. (laughs) And nobody wants to be around the mushy apple tree hanging there, not dropping the apples that are offering anything. So the tree realizes that, well, that wasn't good. That wasn't helpful. And it's actually more harmful than good. People stopped visiting them. The, the, the sweetness turned to sour. Getting really frustrated with that, realizing I can't hold on to that season. I can't hold on to the goodness. And I can't really bear going through the other cycles. I'm just going to go in the other direction. And So this is the latest iteration in a nod to Anakin and the Jedi. It whips out a lightsaber. 
and cuts off all of its branches. It's like, if I can't have the apples to be here all, all the cycle and be fresh, might as well not have any apples at all. So the first one with the duct tape is extreme attachment. And this cutting off of the branches is detachment. And then it knows no seasons at all. It knows one season, which is a place of nothing. People don't visit. There's no apples. There's no sweetness. There's no sour. There's just being with hardly anything at all. Lifeless, yeah? To be out of that cycle of joy and disappointment that it was going through for, you know, for a long time, it felt good for a little bit, but then it realizes this isn't good either. This is just lifeless. Nothing's happening. So it, having learned a lesson, re-sprouts all of its branches and rests itself into the full cycle of its life, allowing things to come when they come and to be offered when they can be offered and to go when they go, embracing each season, knowing that each depends on the other. And that's that place of non-attachment, fully being with what's happening while it's there, but noticing that takes up time and fades away and... Because of it fading away, it can come again, yeah? So that's how the tree learned the difference between detachment and non-attachment, to be fully itself in all of its seasons. And it calls to mind a verse by Wu Min in the, uh, the gateless doorway or doorless gateway or gateless gate. I believe it's uh, the ordinary mind is the way koan. But the, the phrase that he says at the end is flowers in spring, a breeze in summer, the full moon in autumn, snow in winter. When idle concerns don't hang in your mind, that is your best season. I think that's what that tree had learned. The idle concerns of trying to hold on to something or reject, you know, Itself being the idol concern. When it wasn't so concerned about itself and immersed itself into the fullness of life, it found its best season year round. Yeah. Very lively. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's the apple tree story. Again, birthed in a short ride with my son through the car, and I was like, oh, this is great. Thank you. <laughs> um, so now we called, you know, hanging out with this one, one from. I think it's, it's shown up a few times in things that I've offered, but um, I'm not sure if I went into it fully. But this relates to... There's a lot of hmm, energy in this world about just let it go. You hear people saying that to, to themselves or to you, or maybe you say it to yourself, just let it go, let it go, Right? Normally, when something is bothering somebody and it's really not being helpful anymore, the advice is to just let it go. What they're really saying or what the intent behind that is, get rid of it. So it's not let it go. It's throw it away. Cut it out. Get it out of here. That's like cutting off the branches almost. Let it go. Push it away like this. And let it go actually just means release it. Yeah. Let go of your hold on it. But it has nothing to do with going away. 
when you really look at the word. Letting go just means releasing the thing so that it can have its life again. Yeah? So, you know, there's this current of, if this, if this thing isn't serving you, just get it out of your life. And cut it out and try to get rid of it. Well, the thing is, when I'm doing this to get rid of it, I'm staying connected to it because I've got this hand, this arm sticking out, keeping it away or throwing it away, so I'm still connected to it. There's just an arm's length distance between me and the thing. And maybe it's starting to come back. I'm like, whoa, stop. <laughs> Put my hands out. So I'm not really actually letting go. I'm just occupying myself with my hands open and fending off my territory. Yeah. And so that way, is, that's a form of attachment. It's an attachment through aversion. Because I don't like it, I'm trying to get rid of it. And therefore, I stay attached to it. And then the other side of attachment is attraction. When something's good and we want the good thing, and we're reaching for it, right? We want to pull it to us. Maybe before it's time to come to us, we're reaching for it. Or maybe when it does come, we're holding on to it really tightly. So what I notice is if I'm reaching for something, I feel like I'm connecting with it, but it's also kept at an arm's length because I'm trying to grab it. So again, the other one might be I just grab onto it, or it arrives and I hold onto it tightly and don't want it to slip away and kind of wrestle with it, yeah. So there's that, you know, attachment through, again, aversion or attraction. Trying to keep it when it's time to go or trying to get it here before it's time or maybe trying to get rid of it before it is time for it to leave. And that can become quite a, a, uh, a dance. <laughs> I don't know if it's a dance. Quite a wrestling match to be in and to manage and to try to control things in that way, right? So it occurs to me the way to um, to work with the letting go again is to just release things, allow them the life that they have, and then to keep my hands open so that things can come. And this is where there's a temptation for detachment, because I could keep my hands open, kind of like this meditation posture, or just keeping them flat, open like this. And be look, look at how welcoming I am. My hands are open for things to come, but they're very flat. So when things come, they just kind of land and they might roll off. It's not very lively. It's kind of a detached welcoming. Meeting things, but not engaging with them. So the only thing needed to do there is wiggle my fingers. Yeah, Keep my hands open, but wiggle these fingers so that when things come, I meet them and I hold them and enjoy them for the time that they're here, engage with them, yeah? And then there's room for them to stay and do what they do and have their life, but there's also the space for them to roll on and move when it's time for them to roll on and move. And I might try to reach after them, but I can always return to this place and welcome what's coming next, yeah? But again, it's these wiggly fingers and open hands that, to me, that's the non-attachment not trying to hold on to it too tightly, not trying to get rid of it, not trying to reach for it before it's time to be here, but welcoming it and engaging with it as it arrives. And again, allowing it to have its life and to move on when it moves on. And maybe it circles around and comes back, I don't know. So that release is also towards me. <laughs> Releasing myself so I can be held in that same space of engagement and activity things moving alive right there, yeah? 
the seasons, like for the tree, allowing the seasons to roll through as they roll through over a lifetime and within the space of an hour, perhaps. Entire cycles of seasons. Yeah. So in hanging out with these stories, I noticed how you know, non-attachment is what is spoken of in Buddhism and in our way. And that we can know it how it isn't attachment and it isn't detachment. Non-attachment is right there, kind of the, the core thing. That can sometimes be, like I said, misunderstood as detachment. And I noticed how non-attachment is related to equanimity. And we hear that spoken of in Buddhism and Zen in our practice too. And that can be seen in different ways and understood or misunderstood, perhaps. And um, sometimes we have these conversations, you know, we talk about us being the open source and how are we different than other Zen traditions and other forms of Buddhism. So this might be one of the ways that we're definitely more Zen in the view of equanimity than other forms of Buddhism might be, but also a particular flavor of it in our tradition of the open source. So I'm just saying, here's an example of how the open source might have a unique flavor to it with equanimity. So as I, I sometimes hear, often hear equanimity referred to as me being in a state of calmness and evenness so that when things come, I'm not ruffled and tossed about. I'm able to just maintain my state of equanimity, yeah? But I, when I sit like this and I do that, I notice that's based on detachment. Because it's, if I go too deeply, if, and I'm going to expand or exaggerate this, but if I'm trying to maintain a state of equanimity, my state of equanimity, I have to keep things from ruffling my waters, ruffling my feathers. So it becomes a self-protection project to, for me to stay equanimous. Yeah? This came up many years ago. I was speaking to a college class and this um, young woman, in her words, after I spoke about things for a while, she said, I had this high school teacher who said he was Buddhist. So apparently what I said had her wondering who's who. <laughs> he just, well, he said he was Buddhist, but he, he described himself as being just calm and centered and nothing ever affected him. And it's like, is, is that... It's like, that doesn't sound like we're, what you're talking about. And I said, oh, no, not at all, not at all. And I felt really sad for that teacher that I never met, that he saw this practice for him was about, let me be in this still place where nothing ever, ever bothers me. And I said, it's actually the complete opposite. Let me get fully into life, yeah? Let me be affected by it. Let me engage with it. And that's where the equanimity of our tradition comes forward, where it's not about maintaining my state, it's meeting things equally, showing up and meeting them directly, yeah? And then responding appropriately, which doesn't have anything to do with trying to keep myself in a particular state, because some things I meet and I respond to, they're gonna really ruffle my feathers, splash my waters about, and that's good. 
And there may be, over the course of time, most things don't do that because when I meet them, the streamlining of responding versus reacting kind of takes over. So I'm not as tossed about by things. But it's not because I'm trying to not be. I'm endeavoring to meet things on equal ground and, again, respond appropriately. And to me, that's equanimity based on non-attachment, that thing with the wiggly fingers. Yeah. Let me get in there and engage with things, but not try to control them. And not try to, try to control myself and think about how I should act, how I should be, or how it should be out there. But what happens when I don't turn away from it, but meet it? On equal ground, equal standing, again and again. Yeah? With no idea what's next, but ready to respond and engage in that way. So, so I think, yeah, there's could be a very fine line there that we get to dance. But the equanimity based on non-attachment to me feels much more lively because it's about being in the world. And so this phrase that I like to bring forth is, uh, I'd say, okay, the equanimous non-attachment is to be fully immersed in the world and engaged, yeah, but not entangled by it, yeah, or engaged and fully immersed yet not entangled by it, by this world. So I was looking, you know, hanging out with that and that not entangled by doesn't mean I don't get wrapped up in things and have things twisting around me, but that's not a problem. That's part of being in this world is to get wrapped up by things. But when I don't have an idea that I'm supposed to be getting over there and I'm getting entangled by this and it's keeping me from getting where I need to be, that's what makes it entangling if I'm trying to get somewhere else. But when it's like, oh, this is the happy consequence of being alive and having a world to engage in is to get twisted up in things. So it's not entanglement, it's being alive, being enriched by the complexities and the messiness of our world, yeah? So the other, the, the beginning half of being fully immersed in the world, I noticed for me and um, maybe for some of you, that brings about a <gasps> reaction almost, like the idea that comes to my mind of, Fully immersed is like going full tilt all the time. I can't do that. So fully immersed isn't necessarily a moving forward. It's a coming straight down and plopping yourself in the world. Not turning away from the world. To be fully immersed in that way. Not trying to retreat. Not trying to figure out a formula to get around it. Not... Figured, trying to figure out how to build up barriers to keep the world from coming here, but to sink fully down into it, and then responding appropriately from that full immersion in life. To be, you know, to turn towards life, to lean to life, is to be fully immersed in the world as I see it. And the degree to which that happens, to the immersion and the engagement, well, that depends on the circumstances, yeah? But my... My engagement, my responding is rooted in the actual meeting with things as they are coming to meet me. So 
So it's not a predetermined stance. It's not a recipe I'm following other than let me be immersed, let me be grounded here and meet things as they come. So um, to help with that, and maybe just another, a koan came to mind as during walking meditation that I'll close with, but it kind of speaks to that speaks to that question that may be there of how do I stay fully immersed in the world? Yeah? So in this koan, there's a visitor who's come to the monastery and just wants to, you know, it's a monastery up in the mountains and just came to a visit to see, well, how are things here? What's going on? So the visitor meets with the monastic and they have a conversation. The monastic says, so what's, what's your practice like where you come from? What do you do? And the visitor says, well, it's a place where we take things very seriously. We, we look at things and we talk about it a lot and we're really, really engaged with those issues. Yeah. And then the visitor says, so what's it like here? What, what's your practice here? And the monastic says, well, it's a place where we tend to the fields and harvest the rice and cook it to eat and and take care of each other in that way. And the visitor says, what does that have to do with helping the world? The monastic says, what are you calling the world? So, thanks. Thank you for listening. For more about Andrew Palmer and his teachings, please visit bowandroar.com and look for him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.